Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello Trojan fans and welcome to episode number 159 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is February 28th, 2011. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. We're going to talk to the usual suspects. We've got Dan Weber coming up a little bit later on talking about the team, some off-season workout stuff, some NCAA stuff. We've got Gerard Martinez. We got to see a couple of uh, committed USC recruits for the class of 2012 at a camp. The other days, so we're going to talk about what we saw there. Two of the four commits, actually, for the class of 2012, we got to see at the same camp. So we got some film and stuff, and we got some analysis of those two guys coming up later in the show. And of course, we got Coach Harvey Hyde in the first segment from no exotic location, just at home in the, this, the home studios in Pasadena. What's going on, Coach? Buddy, I'm doing great. I'm just sitting back here getting ready to do our podcast, and I tell you, I want to thank everyone out there. I tell you, I go around different places. I was at the FC game the other night, and uh, people ran into me, and they say, you're at a lot of places. Catalina, you're here, you're there. <laughs> I said, hey, you know, you got to move around, and you got to have a broom. Sometimes you got to hide in the closet, but uh, I have a lot of fun, and congratulations. I want to say this to Kevin O'Neill. Four straight victories. It's exciting to see his team at this point of the season playing as well as they are. A great defensive team, and you know, since Washington State beat Washington yesterday, that's on Sunday, that if they go up and sweep, that's a, that's a tough assignment, sweep in Washington this weekend, they will finish up third in the Pac-10, and that is tremendous. If they split, they've made the top four, which means they get a bye in the tournament, I think he's done a great job, and I tell you, those kids have played their heart on. They certainly have, Coach. And it was a little rough patch in the middle, but uh, it's it, things are looking up. I mean, they got a chance to make the tournament now. They're playing pretty well. They beat Arizona, so you can just you can beat anybody in the conference once you do that. Um, well, I wanted to uh, let people know if you have any questions or comments, drop us an email. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address, or give us a call two zero six eight eight eight. Six seven five five. We got a couple of voicemail questions that will be coming up later on the show. Just leave us a voicemail at that number two zero six eight 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 six seven five five. And what you can do is leave the voicemail. We'll play it on the podcast and answer your questions there, so you can hear your voice on the podcast. And I wanted to thank our sponsor for this segment, Southern California Tickets, sctickets.com, one eight hundred eight 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 seven two eight seven. If you need tickets for anything, concerts, sporting events, theater. And Coach, I did go see Rock of Ages the other night over the weekend. Great show uh, at the Pantages Theater. It wasn't the the typical kind of musical, just a lot of fun. And uh, if you want to do stuff like that, take your take your loved one, whatever you want to do, sctickets.com has tickets for all that kind of stuff. You're exactly right. I, tell you, I saw you on the uh, red carpet, too. <laughs> how did you like how did you like the Academy Awards, really? How is it to be there in person? Yeah, that, that actually went Saturday night, Coach. But they they did have a red carpet event at the W. We ate at the W beforehand right across from the Pantages. And they had it blocked off for a red carpet event. I'm like, the Oscars aren't until tomorrow. What's going on? But there was some kind of pre-party. I don't know, whatever it was. But that's not my scene, Coach. I like going up to Hollywood sometimes. But, you know, I'm, not, I'm no A-lister. 
<laughs> okay, I thought you maybe you were there supporting <laughs> somebody. I thought that was you. They were trying to get you to interview, but you were you said that you just kept going. Each channel, channel, no, I'm not going to talk to you. Um, well, there are a couple, couple topics today, Coach, and uh, we had a great question come in. We'll get to that in a second. It's kind of uh, a multi-podcast type of topic. We want to get some football 101 talk with you since you being a former coach. You know you know what you're talking about with that stuff. Uh, but uh, speaking of coaches, Ted Gilmore, uh, USC hired, Lane Kiffin hired a new wide receiver coach. Uh, Ted Gilmore, he was the last, spent the last six years at the University of Nebraska. Four of those, he was the uh, recruiting coordinator as well. Uh, maybe kind of get your initial thoughts on him. Well, you know, first of all, I think it's a good hire. But what it does, first of all, you're hiring not only a coach, but you're hiring a great recruiter. And part of college football is evaluating talent and being able to get out and recruit. And by hiring somebody from Nebraska, that means you hired somebody that knows California, but also knows the nation, but specifically knows the Midwest. And I'll tell you, this is really important. Because what that does is open a lot of doors now to USC recruiting, which means you don't just drive down a freeway and say, where is this school at? You drive down the free freeway, you know where the school is. Plus, when you go into school, you can say hi to everybody you already know. And the first thing they say is, congratulations. I understand you got a new position at USC, blah, blah, blah. And you've already open the door because they've known you in the past. So I think it's a great hire. It's going to open up a whole new area for USC and recruiting. He is a great recruiter. And if for some reason the NCAA comes down with some stupid ruling regarding Lane not being able to recruit or some stupid things like the rumors I'm hearing that they could possibly do, which if they do, it's stupid. Uh, he would have a person to be able to go on the road that's got great experience, knows how to close, knows how to find players and evaluate players and get them to come on and over to USC and evaluate. And I think now uh, not only do they want to put a fence around L.A., but they also want to be able to go after, as we discussed, I think, last week. I'm not sure if we did or not. Maybe that was another show. That next year's recruiting is going to be all five stars and four stars. They only have 13 seniors on the team. So they're not going to have that many scholarships if all the seniors, uh, you know, if everybody stays that's on the squad now. So if they can only bring in 15 and everybody stays, then you want to bring in 15 or 13 five- or four-star players. So you want to be able to open up the area to great players because you've got to be in quality. They had a great recruiting class this year, but they had some three-stars, but those three-stars are the same guys that have been redshirting it Oregon State that has beat SC. These guys aren't looking to go anywhere or play in the NFL in two years. So I think they had a great, great recruiting class this year to bring the numbers up. Now they can go all four and five-star players, nothing but the best to fill their needs. I, I think it's great hire, a great hire, and I think that's where what their plan is. Well, we'll see what happens with uh, Coach Gilmore there. We got to see him down at the conditioning workouts and uh... – yeah, I mean, it, it, he's, he was into it just like all the other coaches, so it seems like he hit the ground running. We'll see what happens with him. Obviously, we can take a, a, a closer look at him during spring football, kind of watch the, the drills that the wide receivers do, see what kind of techniques he runs and things like that. Um, we have a question, Coach, from Ed. He's our number one Trojan fan down in San Diego, and it's kind of a, a request. Um, he says, many fans... We hear talking like he's a three technique or he's a four technique or he's more of a guard versus a tackle, things like that. He wanted us to, to kind of break down 
the different position groups and give kind of layman explanations, definitions to some of these terms that you kind of hear you know, all the time. And, and, you know, you're hearing a lot of it during the NFL combine. If you're watching that on the NFL network, kind of see what's going on there. There's a lot of different techniques like, you know, loose through the hips or all there's all kinds of stuff that you hear. And I mean, a lot of people don't really understand, you know, even if you've played football before, you don't, maybe you don't understand some of the terminology. And I thought we could kind of break down and do some, some football one-on-one segments. We've done these in the past and I think they've been fairly popular. Is that okay with you, coach? Sure. Anything you want. Uh, is there a specific position group you think you'd like to, to start talking about? Maybe something you've seen recently on NFL Network they were discussing, or is there any place you'd like to go with that? Well, I think the number one thing you always have to do is you have to have bookends on offense. you got to have bookends. Every time you have bookends, your best player normally is your left tackle, your best pass blocker, but that's the blind side of the quarterback. You've got uh, – if when you have bookends, I tell you, you've got a pretty good solid offensive line as long as the inside guys are, are, are the type of guys who can get it done. We'll talk about that too. So what do you look at for book, bookends? What do you look at? Because when you can pass block and run block and so on – you got a pretty good shot at moving the football, especially if a quarterback is confident when he's looking to the right or looking around that somebody from the outside isn't going to come in and nail him from the backside or strip the football, and you got a fumble and a turnover and so on. So when you look at the offensive tackle, what you look at, first of all, you want to get big guys, but you got to look at their feet. you got to have feet to play offensive tackles. Why? You've got to block probably the quickest guys on the defensive line, which is the defensive ends, guys that are rush guys, guys that come out the out, come up the outside of the field. If you notice now, in pass blocking situations now, you see the tackles they don't even go down into into a three point stance. They drop their back leg back to depending on what side of the line of scrimmage they are, so they can take a step back and position themselves to block these guys. But they're running four six, four five five, and so on, playing defensive end, and uh, really scream. In fact, the possible two, possibly the two first players selected this coming year, will be defensive ends. The one from Clemson and the kid from North Carolina. So you know they're pretty good athletes. So you got to have bookends. So you know what you look at too. You got to have guys that can move their feet, change their lateral movement, and so on. And you want them to have long arms. The reason why you wanted them to be able to keep the defensive end to, away from your body. You don't want them to get in to use an over-under technique on you and so on. You want to get to them. You want to keep them away from your body. You want to be able to move your feet and be able to maintain the distance so he can't get into you. And you've got to be able to bend your knees. You've got to get into like a sitting position where you're square with him, looking him right in the – I used to say you watch the heart, wherever the heart goes, don't look at the head, don't let him fake you. Just look at the heart, and that heart will take you wherever the body goes, and you just keep your positioning so that he can't beat you to the outside or the inside. So it's very important that you have bookends as far as a way to start an offense. A lot of people think, yes, it's the quarterback. Obviously it's the quarterback, but you don't do anything without a quarterback. He touches the ball every single play. But – if you don't have bookends or great offensive tackles, then you really don't have what's necessary to win big. So I, I would think that when you look at the offensive line and when you look at tackles at the combine or in high school and so on, the first thing you want to look at it is their feet. You can coach them up. That sometimes uh, high school keep, kids keep their feet too wide because they try to shorten themselves because they're taller than the guy they're blocking. So they sort of open the width of their legs so that it brings them down where they can see them. 
Now, there is such a thing as being too tall. You've heard a lot of times people saying if you're 6'9", 6'10", you're too tall to play offensive tackle, and I believe that. If you remember back, there were some offensive linemen that played in college and in the NFL that were that tall that really couldn't get in position, and they did get beat, but you just have too much body to move to get in position to play football. You just have too much body to try to move around and be coordinated and be an athlete with. So I would say the ideal side for size for an offensive tackle is probably 6'5", 6'6". Anything above that, you're getting pretty tall. You can play be 6'3", 2", and be a great offensive tackle. It's not that important as long as you have long arms. You don't want to have short arms. You want to be able to get your arms out there to control these guys when they try to come up the field with you, and you've got to keep them away from your body and so on. But you've got to be able to bend. You've got to be able to move laterally. You've got to be able to be in position to pass block. And then also, you, you know, I don't have to say this, but you've got to be able to man block. You've got to be able to get off the line of scrimmage. You've got to be able to recognize defenses. And you've got to be able to pound because normally down on the goal line, they're going to run behind their best blocker. Normally that's your strong side where you have your two biggest men when you go down there to, to score touchdowns on short yard situations. Uh, yet, uh, you know, a lot of people have different philosophies. But I would think that if I was making – if I was – doing a draft. If you remember Bill Parcell, when he went to Miami, the first person he took was Jake Long, offensive tackle from the University of Michigan. That was the number one player as far as taking wide because he was a bookend. He's been all pro almost every single year, I believe his rookie year even, and that's a position you really have to have. So I would say that when you look at these positions and you talk about techniques and so on, uh, if you look at the offensive side, the number one thing I would have to have on my offense, obviously quarterbacks are important, but you've got to have bookends, and those are the offensive tackles. So some of the skill set, you, you mentioned the good feet, and I think people have talked about, um, you know, the, the, I think a lot of it's like lateral movement, being able to go side to side. It seems like the, the ability to stay, on, you know, stay balanced, uh, because as soon as you get off balance, it seems like you're going to get knocked over there. But there. I mean, that's like just saying bookends. I think that was some of the stuff that Ed was talking about. Like, you know, what does that mean? You're just talking about the, the two tackles, the right tackle and the left tackle, right? Exactly. The right tackle and the left tackle. And in the term of football, you call them bookends, but they're the guys on the end of the line of scrimmage, and these are the guys that head up your offensive line, and these are the guys that make it happen. Why? They normally go against the best defensive player on the defensive side of the line, which is, the defensive ends, and I mention that because probably the two players that will be drafted one, two, are both defensive ends this year. Yeah. Not to say fairly in the great player or anything like that, but uh, I would say that uh, am I'm look, am I'm looking when I'm looking at the offensive side of the football, I got to have bookends. I got to have bookends, and they're hard to find. You can find running backs, you can find receivers, you can find other positions, but boy, those offensive tackles—they're hard to find. Great ones. Um, so I, I think part of his question was, well, what's the different skill set between like a guard and a tackle? So you're talking about the bookends of the tackles. What would make a, a player a better guard versus a better tackle? Well, I tell you, in the in the in the, in the guard situation, you want you want to have guys. They don't have to be very tall. You can get by with six foot, six one, six two, or shorter. But you got a very strong individual, very strong, because you're going to play against their biggest man. What you're going to play against is, you know, uh, a Patterson. You're going to play against uh, uh, Casey's. You're going to play against Fairleys. You're going to play against these type of guys 
who are six foot two or six foot one or or some of them below that and and they're very strong yet they weigh weigh three hundred pounds and they really come off the ball they take gaps and they try to power rush you and so on so you've got to have very physical guards you've got to have guards uh, being too tall too would hurt you with a lot of the defensive tackles now that are playing uh, in the NFL and also in college are not real tall guys now Fairley's one of those yeah, I call him a freak when you can be six five and play that way. The kid from Auburn, you know, he's just a freak uh, when you play that way. You can you can play that position and still be big, and you still have the quickness of a guy that's six one or six foot, and you weigh three hundred pounds. So, you know, I, I think that uh, you can you got to have guys that are real powerful, real strong, yet have quickness too. And because they're going to be doing a lot of of, of area blocking, they got to make calls. They, they these Tackles play gaps, so you got to be able to get in the gaps. The A gap is the gap between the tackle and, or no, between the the guard and the center. The B gap is the gap between the guard and the tackle. The C gap is the gap between the tackle and the tight end. So there's always someone always responsible for a gap. If your guy goes away, the guy playing head on you goes away. You let him go. The center picks him up. You go on, but someone is coming to that gap. It's got to be either a linebacker or a tackle slanting down or somebody in end that's going to replace the person leaving that area. So if you leave that area, someone goes free. So that, that's what you call when they talk about area blocking and so on. That's what you do. I like coming off the football. I think it's very important to come off the football. You've got to have guys that can drive guys back that are strong and powerful. And I think it starts, you see more 43 defenses than you do. 50 defenses, yet you see more people going to the 50 defense now. Why? Because it puts an extra athlete on the field against these Wildcats when you have these quarterbacks that are another running back, and as well as a passer, you got to have speed match speed. So uh, you've seen more 50 defenses come about with these new formations and these new offenses that people are running with their quarterback. He's not just a quarterback, but he's an athlete, so you got to replace uh, that your defense with an athlete that runs the same type of speed that these quarterbacks that are running, they're now playing these wildcat and these spread formations. So the center's got to be a guy. You face really more even defenses, so he's got to be the guy that makes your calls. He's the guy that recognizes the strong side, weak side, as far as where their linebackers are and the strong safety. He makes your calls that way. And uh, he, he's got to be very unique because why he sometimes blocks people that are right on his nose, sometimes blocks the linebackers. But he's got to make the calls and he's got to be able to sort of, the reason he makes the calls, he's in the middle of the line. They can hear him to the left. They can hear him to the right. If you had somebody on the right side making the calls, nobody could hear him on the other side. So you know he's the one that sort of sets the pace of, of what's going to happen with your offensive line. So he's got to be an intelligent football player, yet he's got to be a physical player because when they put someone on your nose or the tackle comes to the A-gap, when play's going your way, you've got to pick that guy up. So uh, you've you got to be physical now to play in the offensive line. It used to be, and I think that's one thing FC's lacked. I think FC it doesn't have people that have the tough mentality that it needs to be. And I think that they need to get back to that type of football player. I'm not saying that the athletes aren't great athletes. I think they have to become more hard-nosed. They have to be able to make someone cry. They've got to cry sometimes when they play because they're so mad. And, uh, and I think this is what you have to do as far as being able to own the line of scrimmage. You've got to own the line of scrimmage. 
You've got to be able to play with pain at times. You've got to have the pride because, remember, the offensive line is the most is the least recognized portion of a football team. They never make a tackle. All they do is have their numbers called or their name called when they're offside or when they hold or something like that. So they play as a unit. They probably play entirely more than any other position on the team as a unit. If one guy misses his block, the whole thing is is gone. So it's very important that these guys have a different mentality than the defensive side. On the defensive side, you always play angry, okay? On the offensive side, now what you have to do is play angry, but you've got to be able to think playing angry. So, uh, yeah, and I think this is something SC's got to develop a little bit more of. Not that they don't have nice kids, but nice kids have got to turn into uh, angry kids, too, when it's game time. Angry kids on the offensive line. Well, cool, Coach. That's great breakdown there just before uh before we let you go we wanted to you, you mentioned like the 50 defense and the 43 you're talking about right. it where you bring it like any so people want to know some of the terminology maybe explain that a little bit you're bringing in an extra right, a, 50, yeah. a 50 defense is when you have three down linemen a, di- a lineman over the center a lineman normally on the outside shoulder of the tackle and then you have uh Four linebackers. They call it a 34 or 50 defense. You have a five-man front. Then you have two linebackers outside the defensive tackles. And then you have two linebackers over the guards. So you have a three-man front, and you have four linebackers. So it's a 34 or 54 it used to be called. We just call it a 50. So 54, 34, 50 defense is what it is, an odd defense. It's called an odd defense. Then, of course, you shove it down one way or another, strong side, weak side, depending what you want to do. You take gaps. You slant to the strong side. You slant to the wide side. You do different things that you do to take advantage of field positions and also to uh, formation tendencies and so on of teams that you play. A 40 defense is a 43 defense, which means you have four down linemen alignment over both guards, offensive guards, and you have alignment over both defensive tackles or outside the defensive tack offensive tackles, and then you have linebackers that play in various positions too. They can play obviously one over the center. Then you have one if the tackle slides down to five or four technique, which means outside shoulder of the offensive tackle, then he plays outside of the uh defensive uh uh, tackle, or he can play the defensive end outside farther, and then he can play over like the offensive tackle, like the wide tackle six used to be. But it's, you have a lot of different alignments that you can do with the 40, but basically the 40 defense is four down linemen and three linebackers. The, the 50 defense is three down linemen and four linebackers. Now, you hear different uh, uh, combinations. You hear about 52 defenses now. 52 defenses now is what they're doing is they're playing another uh, strong safety to make up for the spreading of the field. But they're spreading the field now so much, these teams, that you take a linebacker out and you put a strong safety in there or a safety in there that's a combination of a linebacker and safety, and he's a better cover guy with more speed so you try to adapt to a lot of this field that you have to cover now because they're playing 
four wide receivers or three wide receivers all the time and spreading the field with one remaining back and no remaining backs and so on. So you see them now substitute around to be able to have more athletes on the field to match when you spread the field. So it, there's a lot to this. It's like playing chess. Yeah. You know, he does this, I do that. I do that, they do this. And uh, uh, there's a lot to X and Oing too. There's a lot. Number one is the players. It, you got to have players to execute whatever your philosophy is. And then number two, you've got to execute the techniques that you're teaching so that they can take advantage of whatever you're teaching them to take advantage of whatever the defense is doing. And you've got to outperform them and what you do. And the offense has got out, defense has got to outperform the offense and what they're trying to do. So it starts with athletes and that's where it's at, Ryan. If you don't have athletes and you're not a very good coach because everybody <laughs> is a pretty good coach when you have great athletes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I got a coach. Well, we really appreciate it. Thanks for the uh, football 101 lesson. And, uh, Ed, great question. We'll, we'll keep doing that, I think, within the next couple of weeks or so. If you have any specific football 101 questions or stuff that you hear, we could maybe talk defensive line next week or whatever you want. But if you have any specific stuff, just drop us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com. Let us know, and we'll have uh, Coach talk about it. We'll tap into that wealth of knowledge of his football brain. And, Coach, we appreciate you coming on again. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much, Ryan, and uh, have a great week, and I'm looking forward to spring practice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. Just a a quick program note. I don't know if you knew this, Coach, but we do our our live show Wednesdays from Traditions on the USC campus. We do like a live Ustream show, like a TV show, but on the Internet. You can check it out at ustream.tv slash football, or just go to the front page of uscfootball.com and click on the uscfootball.com.tv uh, icon there. We have that on the front page. We're going to have Aaron Osmus, the USC strength and conditioning coach, as our special guest. And we had uh, Joe Barry on last week. You can go on the Peristyle podcast page. You can see that Joe Barry interview. We got to talk to him for about a half an hour. It was really great stuff, talking recruiting and everything. And now I'm looking forward to tapping the brain of Aaron Osmus to see what they're doing as far as conditioning and these off-season workouts. So it should be a lot of fun. I'll tell you, I like it. I've seen it. I watched it. And I also watched your videos this past weekend of all of the different things you have, highlights and conditioning on the field and so on. And it's really enlightening to watch that stuff. So I'd like to encourage everybody to take advantage of it like we all do. You know what I mean? Hey, I appreciate it, Coach. We're working hard out there trying to get the – Get everyone to see what you know what's going on behind the scenes and as they're getting ready for spring football. So it should be a lot of fun. And uh, thank you, Coach, again. Thanks to Southern California Tickets, our sponsor. And we'll be back in 30 seconds talking with uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. we got Dan Weber from uscfootball.com joining us in this segment. What's going on, Dan? How are you? Hey, a uh, lot of stuff going on, actually. Uh, I guess uh, the basketball is going 
pretty good now. They got them organized. They're attacking the zone. They're using the big guys uh, really well. Uh, uh, so potentially good finish for basketball. You had the uh, USC football clinic this weekend. Um, you had uh, uh, actually some really good performances uh, by the likes of uh, uh, Jordan Cameron. I thought Alan Brad, you know, Bradford, a 242 pounds, uh, ran a four, five, six, uh, uh, 40, uh, pretty good for a guy that big. Uh, I think uh, Jordan ran a four, five, nine at 254 pounds. So uh, that was, I guess, the third fastest of uh, of the tight ends. He's certainly the smoothest uh, tight end out, uh, the, you know, the, of all the tight ends, and he certainly catches the ball probably the best. Uh, so. Jordan Cameron might have really helped himself uh, uh, in the you know first day uh, yesterday at the combine in Indianapolis. He's got one. Of, he's got a chance to be one of those USC guys that wasn't very productive in college, and ends up being a very productive pro. Right, and then we had there were guys like uh, Chris O'Dowd who ran well, lifted well. I mean, uh, moved well, and uh, you know he he might have had enough time since the season was over to kind of heal up uh you know he'd always been you know a strong guy uh, up top but um you know his his kneecap had you know uh you know bit hurt i mean i guess it was dislocated that one year and then he got it dislocated again and he's had you know knee and ankle problems and things like that and and at times looked like uh, uh you know that he maybe didn't have the lower base to uh to really possibly get the job done you know, and I think the original you know, NFL combine kind of uh, scouting report on him was maybe uh, because he was smart and, and could do some things. Uh, he could fill a roster, but maybe not be a starter. Now they're saying uh, might be able to be a starter uh, in the NFL at this point uh, because of the way he ran. I mean, I think he he didn't run much over like five, about a five one at you know six five and three hundred pounds. That's uh, that wasn't bad. So, uh, oh. <laughs> and I think Ronald Johnson, you know, he ran a, he ended up finally running a four, four, six, uh, 40, which, uh, I think his first one was over four or five, but, uh, it got down to a four, four, six. So, uh, uh, he needed to be in that in four, four somewhere, but, uh, but kind of not a, not a, all that bad a start. I think, uh, O'Dowd had a pretty good bench press. And of course, if anybody wanted to know why any people who are on the P, if you read it, they'll say, he couldn't, you know, couldn't handle, or USC couldn't handle, or Dowd couldn't handle, you know, the nose tackle from Oregon, uh, that's Stephen Paia, who broke the all-time bench <laughs> press record today. at the 49, season. yeah. 49, did you see that? 49 uh, reps. On, on Tuesday he did that, yeah. 25 pounds. He just, I mean, I think the previous was like 42 or something, 44. I mean, it wasn't even close. He's the strongest, uh, strongest guy by far at the combine so uh the pac-10 uh, i guess the pac-10 rules uh, a little bit yeah not too bad for the pac-10 there so we'll see we'll see what happens with the draft coming up we'll talk about that a little bit more uh i wanted to get into the off-season workouts which we've got to see um since last time we had you on the show they had these uh coaches conditioning workouts and we were down there they had one on wednesday and then an early friday morning we were down there it was real early and yeah. uh, 6 a.m. like the crack of dawn. We put up a whole bunch of videos and uh, photos and stuff up on uscfootball.com. You did a nice piece to put up there as well. And we got there's even more video coming up, so check check back on the site for that. But it's, those are pretty interesting. I mean, the coaches are really working these guys hard, uh, getting them ready for spring football. Yeah, they really are. I mean, I think the kids. Uh, 
I think they realize it's a young team. I think what we figured are 50 or 51 uh, uh, guys on the roster, or, uh, you know, first or second year guys, and uh, I think they know there's some real opportunity. And, and, you know, they're not, you know, last year with the transition year and all of that, uh, you, you can't necessarily look at everybody and look at all the young guys and that. And, it, and you see some of these young guys, the, uh, you know, Deion Bailey's and Anthony Brown's and, you know, Demetrius Wright's and guys like that, uh, you know, walk-ons like Tony Burnett that, you know, see some opportunity in the secondary. And uh, you really see kids flying around out there, you know. So, uh, and, and you get a sense that they the coaches pretty much this year understand where these players are and they may not I think the complexity level was probably going to be ratcheted down some and and maybe uh, a little more you know aggressive attacking play with uh, you know play up to your you know kind of you know physical ability and uh, and not maybe quite as much uh, you know complexity at the say NFL level on defense, but more, uh, let's play with our talent. Let's play with, uh, you know, let's be aggressive and let's just, you know, beat people with, uh, you know, with the people we've got and not try to outsmart them as much. And, uh, and then you see, a, a, for example, you see them developing a kid like Deion Bailey into a kind of a hybrid, you know, Troy Polamalu type player, uh, which they're obviously, uh, you know, trying to develop against, uh, you know, the, the spread option, offenses and things like that and uh, and and you think okay that's maybe something they didn't have last year and they didn't really realize you know what they were going to need for all all the circumstances that they're going to run into and how much of that they're going to see so uh, uh you know you like the sense of you know that there's been a lot of planning going in that they would talk to a Dion Bailey before Christmas about uh, you know uh, uh, adapting to this kind of hybrid position for a big strong quick safety. Um, and uh, so those are, you know, probably really positive signs. Yeah, there's been a lot of positive stuff coming out of these, I think. And uh, we had a question, actually, a voicemail question on that. Remember, if you want to leave us a voicemail, 206-888-6755 is our number. Give us a call. And uh, here's one of those voicemail questions asking about those off-season conditioning workouts. Hello, Ryan and Dan. Uh, I have a question. This is Guy or F. Zunes. Uh, it was a follow-up to a question I asked after the Notre Dame game about how gassed our players looked, and and that was actually a whole season kind of phenomenon. And looking at the tapes, uh, the video stuff that we have showing the last few days, uh, it looks like it's back to Carlisle stuff. Is that correct? Okay, just wanted to ask. Uh, I would say... It probably was an overstatement that they got away from Carlisle. I mean, I think Aaron uh, and I. It, basically, I was there at the first day of winter wake workouts in the more early in the morning, and uh, asked that actually asked that very question to Aaron, and he said not actually not changing much at all, and that he is a, he was a disciple of Chris. Uh, I think they're probably they were doing a little more uh, explosive power lifting. Uh, but and, and that's where they were breaking the records and what have you. And I think they do the one lift that really is, you know, the best lift for lifting uh, a good a good bit of weight and yet doing it in a football you know a football way. But I don't think they were overemphasizing uh, you know the power part of it or the you know the you know the strength of it. But I do think uh, uh, Osmus believes very much uh, you know similar to what what Coach Carlisle believed. I I think the gas was. Specifically, uh, I think uh, 
uh, Jarrell Casey, and and I think Jarrell played awfully hard. And with his body type, I think it would have been nice to be able to spell him a little bit more. I think with the um, the lack of development of uh, of Lonnie, uh, you know, Fangupo, who they weren't able to rotate in there the way they thought they were going to be able to, required them to play, you know, the down tackles. Uh, significantly more plays than they, you know, that they than they wanted to, and they didn't get the defense off the field as much as they needed to. So you ended up having uh, kind of a short rotation with the defenses, uh, you know, probably spending too much time on the field. They they really, you know, weren't great at stopping people third and long when you really need to do that and get off the field. So I think. Probably it was more that than it was uh, the the fact that they hadn't done you know enough in terms of conditioning and and running and uh, and you know endurance and, and that kind of thing or the uh, you know the quick kind of core training that uh, that that Chris believed in. I don't think they believe a whole lot differently from what what Chris believed uh, at all. All right, yeah. I mean, it looks like there's some similar aspects when we're down there I and mean, there. The team run concept that that Carlisle would use, where it was kind of like these stations, and they they go around running. There's a lot of running, a lot of you know, it's like a lot of cardio, I guess. And they do some core stuff or whatever. But they, the the workouts that they're doing right now, the first two looked pretty much the same, where you have half the team working with uh, like Ed Orgeron, and they're they're doing these dives and and rolls on your butt, and you're on you're on all fours, and then. The other half are going through a series of like five different stations where they're doing all kinds of different stuff, and I mean it's like a solid hour where they're go. You know, there's no there's no stopping. I mean, they take a minute break or something for water, but they're just going nonstop, and the, the guys look pretty gassed at the end of the whole thing. Right, they, they're pushing them. They, I think they clearly did in the uh, the second day, and uh, I think the the one emphasis I thought that we picked up on last year was that uh, in the winter workouts. And the thing that the coaches said that they really didn't like is um, uh, in watching the film, when they first came in, they thought this team uh, uh, in the last year or so, guys, when they went to the ground, seemed to spend too much time on the ground, and they weren't getting up. And there's a real emphasis on getting off the ground. Don't stay on the ground, you know. And so they push them harder. And I think they gassed them, uh, you know, they're, I thought they were, you know, now some of the kids said, hey, uh, they thought they gassed us, but that wasn't too bad. But, they, you know, for example, of the kids that I thought looked gassed a little bit were some of the kids not used to it, the, the junior college kids, for example, and things like that. I think they had a, that was a little bit of a rough adjustment because they just aren't going to come in with having been pushed that hard. Uh, uh, you know, at, in, in junior college, but I, I thought uh, I I don't think it's that different. I think it was over. I think it was overstated, and I think it was they just didn't have the rotation on defense. I mean, I think they're playing Oregon, for example. Oregon is rotating 25 players on defense, and we were after the game talking to the Oregon coaches, and they said, you know, we had a you know we have a lot of old, you know older kids, a lot of veterans. And we're able to, you know, play them two, three, four plays, and then we get them out of there, and we, you know, put two more, you know, defensive tackles in, and kept rotating continuously. USC couldn't do that at all. Uh, they just, you know, with the transition year and that, they basically invested, you know, much of their coaching with, uh, you know, a core group, and and there just wasn't a lot. And then they were redshirting kids and what have you. I mean, they, for example. I think their tackle rotation would have done much better had they played George Uco, but they decided, 
it would be far better for him and, and for them in the long run to redshirt him. So he did not, you know, they didn't give up his redshirt. And that would have probably, you know, made maybe Jarrell not look quite so gassed at the end of some games. But, uh, but you know, that, I think that was more the case of what was happening last year than the fact that they hadn't been uh, uh, conditioning them, uh, uh, you know, properly. No, I agree with you 100% there. Um, well, let's, I wanted to, we got some other questions too, but and, uh, some about this Lane Kiffin stuff, but maybe you, you touched on basketball at the very beginning. Uh, you've been to the games, USC won their last four, and I think it was it five out of the last six or something five like that. Five out of six, correct. Yeah, so they finished mm-hmm. pretty strong heading into the Pac-10 tournament. What are your thoughts on the team right now? Well, I mean, I think uh, uh, he's, uh, Kevin has figured out that uh, probably they need to play Gio Fontana at the point, even though, you know, Maurice Jones started there. Maurice has basically become kind of a, a, a five foot seven and two guard. Uh, they know they've got to get and coming off the bench, uh, but he injects some, you know, some quickness and some speed and they can take, uh, you know, and what they've done is I think uh, they got into a kind of a tailspin when Bryce Jones left the team and they took their rotation from eight to seven and they decided we've got to play slow. And as it turns out, they really don't play, especially on offense, uh, they didn't play that well playing slow, and they really weren't able to. They were not set up uh, to attack zones, and they weren't taking advantage. If teams are going to zone you, you really ought to own the offensive backboards because they're not able to block you off man to man. And with two six ten guys, um, you really ought to be taking advantage of that. Well, they weren't. They are now. They're doing. They've changed their approach offensively. You see much more of a. We're a two-man game with the two big guys where one of them diagonally dumps the ball into the other one in the lane or where one guy, one is shooting and the other one is rebounding. I mean, how many games in a row have we, uh, uh, Nikola Vucevic now has six straight double-doubles. The shots, because they've gotten the offense organized, especially against the zone, they get Dante Smith in there right away and he's their, you know, kind of designated zone buster. And uh, they just seem much more comfortable, much more confident attacking the zone. And it looks like when they play well on offense, they, you know, they coach the heck out of them on defense. And uh, they were getting discouraged on defense when they couldn't score the ball. Now that they're able to score the ball, they also seem to be really encouraged on defense. So, uh, uh, and, and seven guys, you know, I mean, you look back at, like those great UCLA teams and that, they didn't go any more, you know, than seven deep. Seven deep is enough. Uh, that's enough, uh, guys. It wouldn't be enough probably if they fell to the bottom four in the Pac-10 and had to play four games in the Pac-10 tournament. But it looks like they're pretty well locked into maybe a four or five game on the first, or on the second day. They won't have to play the first day. So that gets them to where they have to win three games to win the Pac-10. Uh, tournament title and get the NCAA berth, but that's not an impossibility at all. I mean, I, you know, I don't think you know there's a team in the Pac-10 that's any better than they are uh, at this point in time. I mean, they've got. Uh, I mean, uh, Nikola Vucevic right now is averaging, I think, close to 21 points a game and 11 rebounds a game over the last six or seven. Nine, I guess it's nine games now, uh, and he's playing with almost anybody in the country, uh, and uh, so. You know, it's 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 kind of an optimistic sort of a thing. They've got a tough challenge this week, uh, you know, Washington and Washington State, and Washington played them really well down here. Uh, but if they could split those two games, and uh, but 
I still think they might have to win the Pac-10 championship. I think the 12 losses, they've got some great wins, to say the least. They're 3-1 and one against, you know, ranked teams. Uh, that's probably as good a record as anybody in the country has against, uh, against ranked teams. Uh, but they're not, uh, you know, they've got some awful losses in the 12 losses. I mean, just, I mean, the, you know, to get swept by Oregon, to lose to Oregon State, to lose to Cal at home, to lose to Ryder by, uh, you know, 20 points, to lose uh, to TCU, who is like 1-15 in, in their league, and, you know, to lose to Nebraska when you're leading by 20. Uh, to lose to Bradley. I mean, you just, you know, you go back over all those losses and you think, holy criminy, what, what this, you know, what, what they could have done. But they still have a chance to, you know, to make something happen with this season. They haven't quit. They haven't given up. You got to give Kevin credit that he, uh, he made some changes. He did, he's doing some things differently. He's being, you know, more positive, uh, being more, uh, offensive minded. And, uh, and and they're responding. Uh, they're good kids, and, and they've got some talent. So we shall see what we shall see, but uh, but they've got a chance. They've got a chance. All right. We'll see what happens with that. Uh, they got the one trip left, and then off to the Pac-10 tournament. Uh, that's The last subject we wanted to talk about was some of these allegations that came out from against the University of Tennessee and Lane Kiffin specifically. Uh, Bridget wanted to know, a little bit more of those UT allegations, what's going on there. And then we've also had some other questions. Uh, JD in Washington, D.C. kind of had a long statement here, but there's people in different camps, and he's in one of those where he feels that these failure to monitor stuff sounds kind of ominous. And uh, there's a lot of people questioning what's going on. Um, Is it too risky having Lane Kiffin as a coach, things like that? It's kind of the gist of what he was saying, but maybe get your thoughts on the whole situation. You know, I mean, it's, certainly looks like you know another case where you know somebody is trying to you know screw themselves into a kind of a you know a deal where they're going to say that uh uh all the blame goes to lane kiffin you know we've even read that you know tennessee was in the allegations uh, the tennessee football program was and then they took them off the table and and they're going to try to blame everything on lane uh it, 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 it's a little suspicious looking. For example, if, you know, the basketball coach does something and they say, well, that was a failure to monitor, you know, on the Tennessee athletic department, but it's, it's like they've brought in some evidence that says that no, no, those calls, uh, those 16 phone calls, uh, uh, that were all made in the last week before Lane took the USC job, uh, were calls that had been, specifically prohibited by the compliance people at Tennessee. And you think, gosh, he was there 14 months, and they chose in the very last week to warn him in advance. I mean, I've never even heard that, where a coach is told in advance, uh, you can't make those calls, and then he makes the calls. I mean, for example, this week, Mike Montgomery, the basketball coach at Cal, his staff was, uh, uh, and they got a slap on the wrist, but they made over 200 almost 300 phone calls that they weren't allowed to make. And one of the stories was, well, one of my assistants is Jay John, and he made most of them. Now, if you remember the name, he was the head coach at Oregon State until he got fired and got hired as an assistant. And he said, well, I didn't really know the rules. And it was like, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, you're okay. Go ahead. We'll just put you on probation. You were a head no coach in the Pac-10 and don't know the rules. <laughs> it's like that doesn't make much sense. I mean, you got to pass the test and all that, and it was like, 
But it's like that's the you know the excuse nowadays. You know, I didn't know the rules. I mean, I think Wayne be able to say, "Gee, I didn't realize that was the rule." And I guess the the story of having the uh, intern along at uh, at St. Thomas Aquinas, they, uh, their football intern, who was not allowed to recruit, was happened to be there on the day Lane was there visiting St. Thomas Aquinas High School in Fort Lauderdale. Well, as it turns out, the football uh, intern was a graduate of St. Thomas Aquinas, and it was during the holidays, and he went back to visit some of his teachers and old teachers and coaches, and it wasn't there recruiting and wasn't there on behalf of Tennessee. Again, he's still at Tennessee now, though. He's now the director of football operations and all that. I don't know. You know, it, it has an odor to it about the way Tennessee seems like they're going about it. And the, the, the thing you wonder about is how do you do this? Because, uh, you know, normally they call the school the athletic program, like the hearing is supposedly going to be in June in Indianapolis. But they've removed Tennessee from they, – they're going to still be involved in the basketball, all the questions about basketball coach Bruce Pearl, and they're going to be defending that case. But are they going to be defending Lane Kiffin since – the allegations don't specifically say that Tennessee did anything wrong, just Lane Kiffin. Or does Lane Kiffin defend himself? I mean, USC is not going to be involved because nothing, none of this happened at USC. It's a very odd kind of situation where you have a coach who won't be connected necessarily to the program he was at, won't be connected to the program where he is now, and, you know, they said it was unprecedented last year when Todd McNair was separated from the USC program, that that had never happened before, where an assistant coach was separated from his own program, and the program was, you know, was told on appeal, you can't appeal the Todd McNair stuff, USC was told, and Todd McNair couldn't, you know, use USC to defend him. Uh, will this now be the second year in a row that the NCAA has a USC coach in an kind of unprecedented situation as far as, you know, charges uh, that, you know, I mean, let's face it, Lane was middle of the pack. If you look at the pack, uh, if you look at the SEC uh, secondary violations that were, were uh, uh, found the year Lane was at Tennessee, he's like middle of the pack. He's not, you know, I mean, people make it sound like, oh, that was a lot. Lane had six. Uh, the um, Ohio State University, from you know 2000 through 2009, had 375 secondary violations in nine years, or ten. I guess that's almost uh, you know through the tenth year. Uh, 375 secondary violations. Lane had six at Tennessee. Uh, 16 phone calls compared to if you saw the other case that was resolved this week. Uh, uh, Jim Calhoun at uh, at Connecticut, you know, hundreds and hundreds of phone calls and text messages and that that were ruled, you know, out of order. And he's going to be suspended for like, you know, three games. And they lose one. Uh, I mean, they had a, you know, an agent recruiting for him. They had, they invested six thousand dollars, you know, in the in the illegal recruiting. Uh, it was all their coaches were cited as having not told the truth, and they get. Um, they lose one scholarship. Uh, it makes you really wonder if, you know, there is, a, and as, as a lot of people on the P have noted, uh, 
Mark Emmert, the new president of the NCA, basically said you can't compare any two cases. All cases are different. You know, it's apples and oranges. And in effect, that means there are no rules. I mean, if you can't say, well, what this guy did is worse than what this guy did, therefore this, you know, and they're saying, well, no, you can't look at it that way. You know, the USC case is completely different, and that's why we took 30 scholarships away. And it doesn't compare to any of these other cases. Well, you know, then how do you know what the rules are? You know, if there, you know, there are no rules if you can decide each case completely, whether you like the, you know, like the person or not, whether you think, you know, how, you know, are they going to try to turn Lane into Jerry Tarkanian? I don't know, uh, but I don't trust what Tennessee's doing in this. It, it, it certainly looks like Tennessee has decided they're going to try to. Uh, put all the blame on Lane. I mean, here's the first year, first year college football coach, and they're going to say basically he was on his own with no supervision, and that he was the one that was totally supposed, you know, supposed to supervise everybody, uh, and that if anything bad, you know, happens, then it's all, uh, you know, on Lane's, you know, on Lane's responsibility. I, I don't see it, but again, we didn't see you know, what they would try to do with the uh, with the USC, you know, with the Reggie Bush case. We didn't see that. We didn't see it with Todd McNair. Uh, so, you know, I think people can say, I don't like the way this smells. I don't like the way this sounds. But to say that, you know, USC really screwed up by hiring Lane in January and then the NCAA findings come along in June, six months later, and then say, see, you should have never hired him because of what the NCA did six months later. I mean, you know, to say that you knew that anything that happened at Tennessee was serious. Uh, I mean, we know what happened and we still don't think it's serious. It still doesn't look serious compared to so many other cases. Uh, so if you want to say, well, you should have known the NCA wasn't going to like him because the SEC didn't like him and the SEC was mad at him. Uh, is that a good reason to not hire him? I mean, he seems to have addressed, you know, two years of recruiting that was supposed to be down the drain based on the NCA sanctions and all the issues that USC had, and they've done an unbelievably, uh, you know, tremendous job of, I mean, this year, USC looked like USC of old in terms of recruiting, in terms of national impact, in terms of, uh, you know, filling a class. I mean, they've never never had a class of, of 30 guys like they did this year. Uh, could they have possibly gotten a better combination than Lane Kiffin and Ed Orgeron and then the people Lane brought in with him to survive, you know, the NCA sanctions and all that? I really find that hard to believe. I, I don't know that they could have. So for people to second-guess and say you could have hired somebody else, yeah, well, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I kind of often see people – and this has been one of, I think, one of the failings of the basketball program. I think they've used the excuse too much that we're really damaged by sanctions. That's why we don't have enough players. So I don't, I personally don't buy that. I don't think that's a good enough excuse. Yeah, they lost a lot of players, but that didn't mean they couldn't have replaced them. They couldn't have figured out a way to, you know, have enough players. I don't, you know, I don't think that's a, an excuse. And I think it would have been easy to bring a, in a coach in football who would have very easily, as hard as it is, been able to say, 
what do you expect? We're under, you know, NCA sanctions. This is too difficult. Lane never said that. No. Nope. Never accused yeah. anything. Never tried to get out of, uh, you know, we're just going to have the best class you can possibly have. Uh, the only time he got a little aggravated, and he was exactly right, was the NCA's uh, get out of jail free agency card that they threw on USC, you know, where they let guys transfer at any time, you know, to anywhere. Uh, that, you know, basically was like another six lost scholarships or whatever. Uh, but that was, and Lane was right, I think, to make the point that he did, that they just dropped that one on extra. You know, that what does that mean? Does that mean they got 36 scholarships lost? Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's so, quite a bit. Yeah, yeah he did. So, he, so anyway, that's a, you know, it's a long answer. Uh, I think it's to be determined. I can't imagine the NCAA stays with this and tries to turn it into a major, a major sanction. If it does, it certainly, um, certainly has an odor to it uh, uh, to to just pick Lane out and say, you know, we're going to come after him. But especially look at his behavior since he's been at USC. You can't you can't have any better behavior in terms of you know on the field, off the field, recruiting. You know, they're doing it the right way. I mean, they really are from everything we can see. And, you know, we've been around, uh, you know, I've covered, the, I've covered the SEC. You know what's happening in, in some of those places. You don't see that at USC. You really don't. You don't have to do that at USC. And uh, so, uh, I, you know, I think his track record at USC has been so good. And I do like the fact that Pat Hayden mentions that every time. He's asked about it, and I like the fact that on Saturday at the basketball game when Lane was there with his little girl, uh, when they were doing the junior song girls, uh, you know, routine at halftime, there was Pat Hayden right there next to Lane, on, you know, on the floor when the TV cameras, you know, came in, you know, zeroed in on him. I thought that was a really nice touch by uh, by Pat Hayden to, to make it really obvious that, you know, I'm here, you know, right here with Lane, and uh, I don't care what, you know, what anybody's saying. I think Lane's handled this, you know, really, really well. So we shall see where it goes from here. But uh, we certainly but I, shall. I'm not going to ever be one of those people. I think that second guess was the hiring. All right. Well, we'll we'll check it out. There'll be more to the story, and certainly check out USCFootball.com <laughs> for for all so the we're latest. Try things. to maybe try to touch on some of these questions, you know, in in Monday's column for Tuesday. And we've also got a uh, got Anthony Brown to take a look at him as a as a, a big, strong uh, young guy uh, taking a shot at the cornerback. And uh, and Matt Barkley talked to us a little bit about what you can think, what you can look forward to when it comes to uh, uh, next year's offense and where, you know, are we going to see some changes or uh, or how does that, how is that going to develop? And Matt was really able to kind of uh, tell us what, what they're thinking and what he's thinking and how this is, uh, how this is going to develop. And, uh, so we got a couple of those uh, takes to go uh, go along with all the the video. So uh, uh, we'll be getting those up for you here in the next day or so. Yeah, lots of stuff going up on uscfootball.com. Check it out, exclusive video, all that fun stuff. Well, Dan, we appreciate your uh, time. We're going to have to run. We'll, we're going to get Gerard on here in a second here. But thanks again for joining us. I enjoyed it very much, John. Thank you. All right. Bye. Have a good one, Dan. And we'll be back in 30 seconds talking to Gerard Martinez. We're going to finish up with some recruiting. Listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. 
USC Trojan fans to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We're going to talk a little recruiting. we got uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst, Gerard Martinez. What's going on, Gerard? Nothing much. Just came from the Asante Elite quarterback camp today, and um, kind of one of the first camps of the camp circuit, so... Just doing some stuff on that for the site for this week. And other than that, ready to talk some recruiting with the USC fans on the Pair Style Podcast. Yes, of course. We've got we to gotta talk recruiting. And uh, that. so I guess this maybe this is the kind of start of camp season. I've got a bunch of emails that have uh, different schedules for all different kind of camps and stuff. And we'll certainly be out there checking out prospects. And, uh, you know, on, on Sunday when we went to the camp, there was actually a couple of USC commits at this camp over at Carson High School. Maybe we can talk about those guys. Yeah, we had uh, Jadon Mickens, uh, who's uh, about 5'8", about 175-pound wide receiver from Dorsey High School, committed to USC last year, actually. And, uh, you know, Jadon's a guy we really wanted to see because there's no tape out there on him, and he was hurt a lot last year with the broken toe, so he really was not consistently in the lineup. And uh, a couple of games that we saw, I really didn't do much. So today we got to look at him, just watching him running routes and, you know, getting the passes from the quarterbacks who are legitimate Division One quarterbacks, which is important because you want to see a guy, you know, catching those kind of velocity passes and running those routes and just having to run those routes with some type of timing. And he played really, really well. I mean, he was really, really impressive today. Um, I think really kind of over my expectations watching him because, you know, he's coming from track and he's kind of known a little bit as a track guy. I mean, I remember when I first started asking around about him, that was the first thing that came out of people's mouths in the city section was, yeah, he's a fast guy. You know, he's a guy that runs track. And uh, you look at a guy like that and you think, okay, he's not necessarily going to be the best route runner and maybe his hands might be a little suspect, but it'll be fast. Well, he was really smooth and really, really had good hands today and, and ran good routes. And I think, you just watch him kind of play with ease, and he's just one of those guys that has a little bit of that it factor. You know, you just kind of watch him with the ball in his hands. You watch him in open space, and uh, everything looks so much easier for him. It looks like he's playing at a different speed, and um, he really earned his nickname RT, which stands for right trigger, which uh, you'll see on the video interview we did. Uh, he wasn't coaxed into talking about that either. <laughs> I, I mentioned it, and he was like, yeah, man, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. It's kind of a little joke between he and I. Uh, we went back and forth about it, and he kind of liked that as a nickname, the RT, because that's the right trigger button on the Xbox 360 for NCAA football when you want to run faster. He's kind of a fast guy. He's a speed guy. So RT was kind of, you know, we were kind of going back and forth, and I said, all right, man, you're going to be like RT, right? That'll be your nickname. And uh, he kind of liked that. So uh, he, he learned it today, and he looked the part. And, uh, of course, across for him was Darius Rogers, who's also committed to USC, 6'294 pound wide receiver from Carson, California. So the camp was at Carson. He kind of was hosting everybody. And uh, 
not quite as impressive today as Jadon, uh, but uh, was impressive both days. So it was kind of, uh, you know, Jadon didn't show up yesterday because he was actually at a track meet. Uh, but uh, Darius did, and uh, Aaron Gorney, a rivals.com uh, uh, recruiting expert, uh, talked a lot about Darius on Saturday. And today we got to see him in, you know, really a long, smooth, lanky receiver, which is interesting because you don't really think 6'2", 194 pounds is really going to look like that. Uh, running routes, you kind of think, oh, he's maybe a good size receiver, but not necessarily as lanky as he is, but he kind of runs like a basketball player. He really looks like a shooting guard in a lot of ways because he has such long arms. And uh, the, the really the, the key attribute with him watching him today was just where he caught the ball um, in terms of getting the ball out in front of him and, and catching it with his hands and not catching it with his body. Um, he did some good things on underneath routes. Don't really know if he's going to be a guy that can really look at as a burner that's going to stretch the field a whole lot. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what USC does with uh, Jerry. You know, they've got Jordan Payton already committed. He's about 6'2", 195 as well. And then you've got Darius Rogers, who's 6'2", 194. So they're similar in terms of uh, height and weight, a little different in terms of build. Like I said, uh, Darius Rogers has a lot in his arms and his legs. He's a really lanky type receiver. And obviously he's very versatile too. I mean, he caught 41 for 1,300 yards last year but he's also a guy that played a lot of safety. When I saw him play, I was really more impressed with him as a safety uh, playing against Modern Day and against Crenshaw. I felt like he really kind of stood out playing in that position. So, you know, how he develops USC's recruiting him as a receiver, but he's a guy that seemed a little open uh, to, you know, maybe just whatever got him on the field first. So we'll kind of see how that develops as, uh, you know, we get to see and evaluate him at other positions during the year. So that kind of wrapped up the camp. And, you know, a camp with not a lot of guys there, but, you know, two guys are already committed to USC and two really top players, I think, in the state. It was good to see those guys because, uh, again, you know, they're guys that we really need to evaluate more because they kind of have an asterisk of that athlete label behind them. They do. and Well, it'll be interesting to see what they do in their senior year and uh, how the recruitment goes because there are a couple of guys that, you know, there's, there seems to be some athletes here and, and they're playing positions that maybe USC doesn't have the, the greatest need at. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be fun to kind of watch. And both the guys who were committed, they still seem to be open in the recruiting process. They'll still take visits. So it's still obviously a long way away from signing day. Yeah, it's going to be that old thing again. You know, I'm committed and I'm solid with USC, but I'm still looking around. I still want to take my visits. And, you know, USC had quite a few guys like that uh, come through this past year. And um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if that gets adjusted a little bit uh, with this recruiting class in terms of how USC handles that. And uh, you can have some strategy. The last staff actually towards the end of uh, Pete Carroll's era kind of curtailed some visits and kind of when guys could take visits. And they were still open with some of that, but there definitely was a difference in terms of the attitude they had towards guys taking visits and being committed uh, from the end of Pete Carroll's reign to kind of the beginning. And I think you might see that a little bit with Lane Kiffin maybe this year, especially with this being a smaller class. I think when you have 30 guys in a class and just the way they were scrambling last year, they were just trying to get everybody committed, you know, whenever they could get them committed. And I think this class is definitely going to be a little more measured, strategic look at who they have, what the need positions are, and how they hold on to those guys because, uh, you know, it didn't hurt USC a whole lot for guys to be committed and take visits last year, but it did hurt some. You did have some guys decommit and go to other schools. So they can't have that, you know, with only a 15-man a class this year. they got to go after guys they feel pretty solid with and make sure that uh, they stay a part of the class all the way till signing day and don't decommit, you know, a week before signing day. All right. Well, we got a, a question here, too. We wanted to 
find out about. This is kind of a post-signing day question. Here you go. Hey, Ryan. Uh, this is a quick question for Gerard. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago he said that um, we might be signing more potential signings for the 2011 class. Uh, wanted to know uh, what is he hearing out there. I heard about a lot Juan Anderson. I think he was an athlete. You know, he was uh, from Miami. I'm not sure. I heard rumors that he might be coming to USC. Wanted to know a couple more names from the JUCO ranks. Thank you very much, and fight on. Yes, there were. Uh, there's still a couple guys out there that could be a part of the 2012 class. Um, wasn't really so much, uh, you know, me making a, a prediction of sorts. It was really Lane Kiffin kind of talked about that, you know, possibly bringing more guys into this class. Where that stands is kind of still up in the air. I haven't really heard any news on it. It doesn't seem like uh, there's been a lot of movement in, in that way of, you know, who they can sign and who they're bringing in. And it kind of makes you wonder if transfers might be in play and that might kind of hold the staff a little bit with uh, maybe bringing in some late junior college guys into this class. As far as Latuana Anderson goes, we've been hearing, you know, kind of on the USC side of things, it didn't seem like they were really interested uh, that was the vibe that we were getting, and as far as we've seen, Latuan Anderson's talking about being in L.A. and tweeting a lot of stuff about, you know, going to USC. But to this point, we haven't seen him at USC practicing or working out or doing anything or being on campus, uh, you know, let alone being a part of the team. So, you know, that kind of remains to be seen. I, I think that's not holding up, and and he might be just talking, and it's a possibility he may be transferring out here to go to junior college and spending a year before he's even able to go ahead and uh, transfer straight to USC or before USC would really look at him as a transfer candidate. So, you know, that kind of all is all in the air, and we'll just kind of have to see what happens. It's still a possibility, though, and obviously Steve Dillon is still a possible part of the class that, uh, you know, he's working his way, uh, maybe being in there, and, and he's a guy that did commit, is still committed, but is yet to sign. Yeah, so they're kind of we we're expecting something, I think, from Steve Dillon at least fairly soon after signing day. That hasn't happened yet, so he's still trying to get his ducks in a row, and we'll see. Like another JC lineman or two. I don't know. I mean, they, maybe the coach. Do you think the coaches maybe backing off a little bit on some of that, thinking that maybe they don't need to bring anyone else, so just kind of wait and see what happens with the with the appeal? You know, I don't know. I, I really and I really haven't. You know looked at that real hard. It's kind of already, you know, 2012, and we're trying to get as much information and evaluations done on guys that are juniors, you know, going to be seniors next year. You kind of forget about the 2012 class, uh, especially when it's, you know, it might be a couple of junior college guys that are kind of, you know, on the cusp of being off the radar that they might bring in. Um, again, you know, you want to kind of go into speculation and, and conjecture. You do wonder if they want to keep a couple rides open, uh, for possible transfers, and just you, because you, you're not necessarily worried about the limit per class with transfers, but you're worried about the overall limit that USC's at, and you know whether it's going to be 80 or 70, or excuse me, 85 um, with the state sanctions and how that all works, and if maybe they've got a guy that they want to bring in who's a transfer, who's a guy that uh, you know could be a good player for them down the line. Obviously, if you're bringing in the transfer, he's going to have to sit out a year, uh, but uh, if you're bringing in, you know, kind of a an okay junior college player, um, you know, he might not be playing next year either. So you kind of have to look at that both ways. And if it's a quality guy that uh, you can bring in and he can still be a scout team guy next year, redshirt, and be an impact player for you down the line, 
you know, I could see the staff just kind of holding off and, and, and just watching and seeing, you know, who's there and who's still around after spring ball. You see, you got to know there's some cho- some coaching changes out there, and that is usually what makes the waters a little rough in terms of uh, who's coming and who's going. It shakes the boat a little bit, and, and you get guys maybe that – are not feeling the systems and the schemes that are being put in place. Um, I'm going to talk specifically about Florida because I think it's a good example. Not that I know of any guys that really want to transfer right now, but, you know, I think the system where they're bringing in a guy like Muschamp, he's coming in for Urban Meyer, who was obviously a really big player, a really big icon for that program. And a lot of those guys who committed in the 2010 class for Florida were committing because they were there, uh, you know, really recruited specifically by Urban Meyer. I mean, he was a guy that was out there and was the personal recruiter of a few guys that are from California, Chris Martin, uh, Ronald Powell, uh, Josh Shaw. And again, we're all talking about conjecture. We're just, you know, speculating here. But you kind of wonder, maybe USC's heard some things and they want to kind of wait and see what happens with that situation in case guys from maybe Miami or, or Florida or other schools which have had coaching changes, all of a sudden guys start bolting out of those schools and they still have some openings on their roster with the sanctions uh, to still be able to bring those guys in. And you, you got to weigh that. You know, a guy like Josh Shaw, all of a sudden he's not happy and he wants to bolt. You know, how do you compare him with a guy like Latuan Anderson? You know, that that's something that you kind of have to look at as a coach. So, um you know, we'll see what happens. I just that's one of those things that you kind of think in the back of your head. Maybe that's why they're kind of slowing down, pumping the brakes, which is a great phrase that we <laughs> use on the peristyle towards signing day. We pump the brakes a little bit on whether you want to bring in a couple of JUCO guys that are just for depth, or really bring in a guy that might have to sit out a year but could be an impact player down the line for your program. All right, Gerard. Well, great stuff. We just wanted to get you on for a few minutes. We uh, we've been talking a lot of recruiting on the. Uh our weekly show on Ustream on Wednesday. So, you know, we, we put a little bit more emphasis on that, but we still like to get you on the podcast as well. Always, always time to talk recruiting. We can always do it. We can, and I can, so I do. <laughs> and you definitely do. Well, we appreciate it, Gerard. Thanks for joining us. And uh, everyone else, thanks very much for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. Don't forget, Wednesday, 6 p.m. from Traditions will be live. You can uh, tune in for that. And we'll be back next week on the Peristyle Podcast. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 